Welcome to Liminal Theology, a podcast exploring boundaries, transitions, and being in between. I'm your host, Jonathan Best, and join me as we journey into liminal space. It's my pleasure to welcome back Emmanuel Buteau for another conversation series for the Liminal Theology podcast. And I've been looking forward to reconnecting with Emmanuel again and talk about uh, some issues and ideas and concerns that are on the horizon for 2021. How are you doing today, Emmanuel? Ah, Jonathan, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, a bit tired from my last trip uh, to Haiti, uh, but, but I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about you? Hanging in there and hoping that uh, 2021 brings with it something hopeful and some good things around the corner. But of course, uh, there's a lot of things to reflect on and talk about. And that's the topic of today, what's next, is something that I was thinking about actually prior to the election. I feel that the situation in 2021, both emotionally, mentally, spiritually, will still be a, a challenging one. And this is something I just wanted to explore and talk about with you about what's next in your mind for 2021. Are you hopeful or cautious? <laughs> that is, that is a, a difficult question, I have to say. Uh, but, but the answer is, is simple for me. I think I... I've decided that life should be lived, hopefully. Uh, I've seen enough. I've, I've met enough people uh, who the world tends to think have no reason for hope. And I've learned to hope uh, from walking with them, from living with them, uh, and, and really from, from studying with them. And so I know I have no reason to stop hoping if some of those people can find ways to hold on to hope. And uh, I was talking with a friend of mine just the other day. Uh, we were talking about how much, how much life seems to be oriented towards life, you know. And I mean, by life, the first life was more like the world, you know. Everything is oriented towards life. Life has the final word every single time. And to the point where even death doesn't, in my estimation, doesn't put an end to life. Death, in fact, forces us to reflect back on life. It's interesting that at funerals, what we do is not talk about what's beyond death so much. And some people do that, but it's not necessarily factual, right? It's usually something that comes from faith traditions, you know, what we're hoping things could be like. But that's the eulogy. That's the eulogy, which is usually, to me, the centerpiece of, of, of the funeral service, where we look back on this person's life. We try to, uh, to ascertain what was this life worth? Whom did he or she touch? You know, is the world any better or worse because this person has lived on this earth? And so even death, I think, forces us to ask the question of life. So to me, even in the worst times imaginable, it's a choice that we have to make, especially those of us who claim to be people of faith, who, who live by faith. We have to make that choice. And it's the choice that we make that despite all these things, we dare to reflect on 
was possible. And um, despite everything that's happened, there's been so much good, you know. There's been so much good in spite of the chaos, the conflicts, and, and the protests. And in some ways, the protests, you know, especially when we talk about the Black Lives Matter protests, that was positive for the most part, you know. And so, yeah, I say, yeah, I, maybe I can still be cautious somewhat, but, but I'm filled with hope nonetheless. It's a choice that I'm making to live in hope. I really like this idea of choosing to live in hope. And I think this is the perfect time of year to think about that on the advent of Christmas and reflecting on what that means for this time of year and what it means coming into 2021. You know, I feel this year has been exhausting in many ways, mentally exhausting and spiritually exhausting. And and each one of us has had to endure particular challenges and, and issues. And so I'm trying to take this Christmas season as one of looking for that hope, choosing for hope, as you said, and, and finding some way to recharge myself spiritually and physically for the coming year, for one that, you know, we're talking about this being a, a liminal theology podcast. I, I feel we're really entering this as a, a era, a transition point of, of liminality. There is this feeling of, of, so many good things are happening is one of those you mentioned being black lives matter and the, the good that much of the protest movement has brought over the past year. I think there's been a enormous increase in the awareness of these issues and, and the challenge in face of what to me is just reckless hate and so there is a sense of being hopeful and choosing to be hopeful for 2021. And you mentioned this idea of life and death and this reflection on something new, something impossible comes out of the experience of death. You know, I'm reflecting on the time of Christmas and Christmas is one of celebrating life, but it's also celebrating the, the whole life that is, that came from the Christmas season, the advent of Christ, one that is intimately connected to death as well. And I feel like it's at a time of both life and death, one of continual expectation. And I'm thinking of 2021 as thinking of what's next well it's it's one of continual hopefulness for the impossible that from all this mess and death and destruction and well the hateful feelings that many of us have seen and some have experienced firsthand uh that there would be a a advent of hope, I guess, of 20, for 2021. Indeed. Indeed. And looking at 2021, then we need to, I think, look even further ahead. Because in 2021, we'll be, we're going to be preparing for 2031 and 20, 
2041 and 2051. And I think that's why we need to live intentionally in hope because what we do today will, will effectively determine what life is like in 20, 30 years. And so we have so much power in our hands today. Even when we feel powerless, we have so much power. And I know too often we feel powerless. Too often the voices of hate sound louder than the voices of, of love and, 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 and care and forgiveness. Uh, too often um, our leaders are singing the refrains of, of division and segregation, you know, and, and, and maybe too often those of us uh, who are called to stand and, and maybe to offer a different note, uh, to offer something different. Sometimes we're too quiet. We're too quiet. And sometimes we do, you could say, bend toward hopelessness. We're human. How can we not? We're human. Sometimes we're struck left and right and left and right. And 2020 has been that year. Uh, and, and not just the whole, but everything around COVID and protests. And as you said, personally in our own lives, those things didn't stop. We lost loved ones in our lives and, 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 and people lost jobs and careers. And it's, it's a lot of different things, you know. That's the power to me of, of humanity. We can choose how we're going to live. We can choose how we're going to live. We can cast a different vision of things. And I think, I think the last time you and I spoke, we talked about the Black Lives Matter movement to have offered just such a vision. And that's, that's the goal. A vision where so many people who have historically been excluded and exploited, a vision of, of them being included. You know, at the table there, maybe, maybe, maybe the possibility of a full, the full realization of Dr. Martin Luther King's dream. And so I'm looking to 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and I'm wondering, well, what's next? Yeah, what's next is that we make a stand for hope. What's next is, despite all the chaos, we dare to stand and to say, Love is still real. It's still possible. And I think that's the challenge here, Jonathan. That's, that's the challenge here. Those who, who, who claim that, and I'm talking about us here, and those who think like us, that love is the greatest force in this world. We have to dare show the power of that love to make space even for those who are the most different, even those who are the most radically opposed to our views of, of the world, even those who are spewing hate, you know, that we don't respond in kind. Can we dare to show a different model of what it means to be human? You know, and I think, I think that's the trap we fall into oftentimes. The hate comes and we think, oh, I bet they assume a defensive position and fight back. But love says, hey, this explosion of hate is the greatest opportunity that we can find to demonstrate the power of love. And there, the contrast becomes clear. But if when hate manifests, 
we respond in kind as though love were some object we could set aside and pick up when it's convenient. Then what is love but just another commodity? So uh, yeah, 2021 can definitely be a defining moment for us. And even today, we don't have to wait till the year changes, right? I really, I really think I really think we can turn things around, but it's going to be up to us to stand in the power of love and truly show in very practical ways what it means. What you said about when hate manifests, it's an opportunity for love to respond. Throughout this past year, four years, 10 years, it's just been this continual back and forth of, of hate responding to hate. And I think we've come to the point where many of us are, are exhausted, we're tired, and we wonder at what point will love arrive. And I think that depends on us being the vehicles and the drivers of that love, which doesn't mean that we don't call out injustice, that we don't continually work in protesting and calling out injustice and and working for those who are suffering, that are suffering from hate, but that we find some way of using love, bringing love, not just when, like you said, not just when it's convenient, but that it's necessary to do so. And I feel that the, the biggest player, the biggest driver of making a more loving world is the church itself. Christianity in America seems to be not the driver, the initiator of love that I would expect it to be. That it is often manifesting the the very hate that we need to fight back against. I'm I'm still not convinced that Christianity is on board, is going to be a part of this, what I hope to be a transformation of, of hopefulness and love uh, through 2021 and, and through the next decade and beyond. Uh, I get the sense that sometimes it's almost something that we'll have to fight against, that even as theologians and thinkers, that I will not be on the same side as the church same side as Christianity, which is a sad thing for me to think about. Um, and I know it's not all of Christianity. It's not all of the church, especially in America, but there's enough of, uh, there's a large enough portion that causes me to have concern that, you know, when it comes down to it, if it's between the church or Black Lives Matter, I will choose Black Lives Matter over the church if 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 Black Lives Matter is choosing love, uh, then that's what I choose, and and the same for any movement that that demonstrates love, that demonstrates a concern for the other, for the marginalized, for those that are suffering, and I think that's what we have to remain vigilant for. Um, we're not just thinking about one administration or two administrations. Uh, we're not just thinking about. 2021 as you know that everything is all fine now just because 
a certain individual we won't name is not in the White House anymore because uh, those feelings still are rampant and they still exist and something we must constantly be vigilant for. I think there's a vigilance to love, a, a, yeah. a working on it. Uh, yeah. Love's not, our love is not perfect. It's something we have to work on, but we have to be committed to, to do so. And, and I don't think if, if we don't remain vigilant in our love, vigilant in our calling out for the other because we love them, um, when we see injustice, then 2021 is not going to be any better. And it's certainly not going to be any better for a uh, 10, 20 years from now. Indeed, um, and, and and I love that um, you mentioned vigilance. Uh, vigilance. I remember uh, Obama's presidency. Uh, I think was the it was the cause of much. Um, how's the word here? Very much a lack of vigilance uh, from those of who who thought his presidency. Uh, uh, was Adam Brading, you could say, was announcing uh, the end of racism. That that indeed that was the um, that was that was very much what it was. We have a president that looks like that, then this country cannot be racist for sure. And and so and yet even during Obama's administration, things went on that I would not even support. You know, uh, I think I think you may remember our, our time in in. Uh, Dr. Drew Holland's class, uh, you know, and I remember Drew Holland talking about this, that, well, as president of the United States, Obama has a kill list. Uh, you know, he has things, he has people on his list and people that have to be taken out, uh, probably in the name of terrorism and national, or, or national security, whatever. And, uh, however, they decide to, to frame it. But, you know, like him or not, Obama was president of the United States. And at a time where we're discussing so much, you know, so loudly we were screaming uh, the 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 the, uh, the evils of uh, or denouncing the evils of of systemic injustice. Let's not forget, changing the person at the top doesn't necessarily change the system, and that's where I love that you're talking about vigilance. You see, changing the person at the top does not change the system. This person hopefully will give a new direction to things. This person maybe will be more reflective and offer the kind of leadership that we need and, uh, and maybe hopefully lead us to a new way of, 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 of being and living in this country. So vigilance is indeed, I think, uh, the wise way to move ahead. And, and you're right, love does call for vigilance. Uh, it does call for vigilance. Because, you know, sometimes... Even while you're asking what's next, you ask yourself, how did we get here to begin with? How did that happen? You know? I don't know one, one idea that came to me, which I spoke at my mom's funeral this year, it came to me at the very end, at the graveside service, and, and I said, my mom did not define love she let love define her and you know and, and as you were talking about love being vigilant and talking about the power of love to 
to, to, to overcome uh, hatred. I'm thinking about that. Uh, the, the way you, you, know, you said, our love is not perfect. And I love that. You see, our love is not perfect. But the way we talk about love theologically, right? We talk about love um, being, being that which originates, or maybe that, that which reminds us the most of what God might be like, right? Uh, that which is manifested so clearly in the incarnation. It's something that is so much more beyond us, right? Not, not the love that you and I do every day and try to do, but the love that perfects us as we try to practice it, right? As we try to approach it and get closer and, and, and imitate uh, what, uh, what's been done for us. And this perfecting love, I think maybe is what we're talking about here, um, which does call indeed for vigilance on our part so that we, we don't ever think that we've got it all figured out. And that all of a sudden, so this group is in power and everything's great. Everything's perfect, perfect love, perfect everything. This guy was the one who was in the wrong, you know? And so, yeah, it doesn't work out like that. We, it surely didn't work out with Constantine, you know, Christianizing the Roman Empire did not make the Roman Empire Christian, right? It, it, it's, you know, you know, it's just this kind of approach here. Uh, you change, change the top and all of a sudden, uh, you think everything's okay. It's not okay. Um, this walking in love, to let love bring about its perfection, but never claiming to have, say, the power to love perfectly, you know? Leaving that in the hands of, of the one or the ones who alone, who alone have that kind of relationship with love, you know? And, and maybe that's what we need to look at more in 2021. When it's relationship. Mm. You talk about love outside of the context of relationship, then you're saying nothing. You're saying nothing at all. And if I understand the Christian story at all, and not just the Christian story, so many of the traditions, love seems to be this thing that calls us to it. It is this thing that calls us to it. We don't ever own it. We can't ever really define it. And I'm not too crazy about what Paul does in Second Corinthians because all of a sudden we have a handle on what love is, right? And every wedding, right? That's the passage to be read, you know? And you think, okay, that's nice, nice practical advice, but it's not quite love, you know? And maybe it's more of an invitation to love, you know? And so... In 2021, we can, we can set a different path, a different course, maybe work on those relationships that have been breached, you know, um, and just separation because of COVID-19, work on reconciling and bringing things back together. Um, and we do it in a concrete, concrete way. And my, what a way, what an opportunity for us to maybe bring, come together with, to a common vision of, of, of what this country could be like, you know, what the world could be like, you know? Can you imagine a world that's, you know, a vision of the world that, 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 that's framed by everybody, especially the weakest, the poorest, instead of the G9s and the G20s, you know, deciding what things are gonna be like, and as we've discussed before, and then sending it that way, tell them that's what's been decided, you know? And it's, it's the same vision of the world, the same predatory, the same controlling, dominating, colonizing is the same world that we've suffered from and that's brought us to where we are, uh, to where 
we have a country that's divided like you know um, so drastically and it makes you think of the civil war where one brother was fighting against another right in the same country you know and so yeah we need to be vigilant because the 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 risks are quite high when we're not you know things that sneak up on us you know i really believe that we need to be responsible for our love and in that the part and part of that is perfecting working on our ability to love and realizing that as our love is not perfect our sense of love can often do harm to others when yes. we fail to when we fail to realize that you know there's things about my love that are not necessarily maybe there's some right intentions there there's often disastrous outcomes and 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 i i can't perfect that love i can't work on that love be responsible for that love if i'm depending solely on the top whether that's the president whether that's uh the g20s or jeff bezos or elon musk or or whatever company uh to to do that for me you know biden can talk about a more inclusive nation and that's good but that really require you know that that type of stuff won't matter unless i'm willing to admit that i need to work on who i love and how i love and and who i choose to give my love to um i think one of the biggest problems that we've seen over the past i say the past decade or so but longer than that uh at least in this country is this sense of not being vigilant in our love being willing to work on it we think we're okay we think okay you know the bible tells me to love others jesus tells me to love others so that's what i'm doing and and you know uh, and, and a lot of that mounts to just uh you know i leave them alone and they leave me alone that type <laughs> that type of love and we think that's okay that's that's doing you know as long as i don't hurt them or as long as i don't uh you know do anything to to harm them directly you know that's okay i i i uh, i'm loving in my own way or, or loving from a distance, that type of mentality. Yeah. I think a lot of damage has been done, and particularly by the church, by not admitting that our the way that we show love um, is often quite poor, often um, contributes to systemic issues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I really believe that if if we were more willing to work on it not only to realize that you know to realize that my love is not expansive enough it's not yeah. committed enough it's not full enough to be really what it is that christ was telling us to do to you know that that we claim to be followers of christ but yeah. um a lot of the love that we do doesn't seem all that Christ-like. <laughs> I know growing up in the South, the the phrase I have uh, heard in my life was the phrase, bless your heart. And, <laughs> and, and many people said that to me, or they would say that to, you know, they see someone doing something that they didn't agree with, <laughs> which was always felt that was the epitome of, well, 
I love them, but I don't like them, or I love them, <laughs> but they're not very, you know, they're not like me, or they wouldn't. There, there's this a, a condescending attitude yeah, of that love, indeed, indeed. Um, and you know, love is love is a very difficult thing to do. It's a difficult emotion. I think we think of it as easy. It's hard to love sometimes. It's hard to love others that we disagree with. Yeah. Um, you know, even at this particular time. There's, there's people with viewpoints that I, I don't agree with and, and I have to find some way to love that person yeah. because I know if I don't, if I don't work on that love, it's not just that that love remains static or my emotions remain static or my being remains static, that there's something that develops within me that, you know, there's no other word to describe it besides hate the manifestation of, of some kind of violent attitude of, um, or even indifference, un- uncaring things about myself that I don't really like. And so I think, you know, the darkest times in my life are those times where I've stopped working on my love, where I, I, it seems too difficult for me. And I think, I think what we have to do in this transitional time as we look to what's next is, you know, really making a commitment to being responsible and being vigilant in that love. Indeed. Indeed. And, and, and I was thinking about vigilance. I think there's an element of awareness in, in vigilance, you know, uh, love with awareness, awareness of who we are, uh, awareness of where we are, uh, an awareness of what the world needs, you know, an awareness of the needs of the other. Uh, and I think, I think we need to know why love is the proper response to hate, to indifference, to domination, exploitation, you know. So we do need to live, you could say, reflectively, uh, reflectively. And I think um, but that takes me back to you know the work of of Gadamer, for instance. It makes me think of uh, the work of, of Kierkegaard a little bit, and 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 maybe maybe Christmas is not supposed to be this thing where we rehearse and rehearse and rehearse what we've always done. You know, the Christmas concerts where we sing the same songs. It might be different arrangements of the songs, but the same songs, same message. And yet Christmas was supposed to bring a different message. Indeed, that message we're talking about here, the power of love to transform, to transform. And interestingly enough, and then this is uh, giving you a preview of, of the, the paper that I'm doing for, uh, for the Limbo Theology website. You know, uh, thinking about Christmas, you don't get to see the meaning of it until you get to Calvary. You get there, you look back and say, ah, so what happened on that night with that little child who couldn't speak a word, you know, who the world didn't even know was there, that completely meaningless, meaningless event. So that's what it was leading to. So you can never think of the resurrection, the cross, 
all these great symbols, if the beginning doesn't have any meaning, it all begins right there at Christmas. The statement was made right there. And so, maybe that's why death always pushes us towards our own death. Because it is, it is as we look to the very end of who we are, when we are pushed to the breaking point to make space for those that are so radically different that it scares us sometimes, you know? But that was it though, wasn't it? So radically familiar, a little baby born of a woman, but so radically different. God incarnate. Makes me think of Tillich talking about that in the Christ, that is what we see, isn't it? It's where the, the radically abstract meets the radically concrete. Right there in this, in this baby. And I think our lives are like that in so many ways. And that's the challenge and that's the struggle, Jonathan. Even with our politics, we abstract so much from reality to build our political systems and economic systems, but we don't come back to the concrete to change it and to, to give it meaning. And so something that's done in the name of the poor ultimately oppresses the poor. Something that's done in the name of self-defense becomes the source of violence for so many. You see, and so what's supposed to be a uniting force is actually what's separating us. Politics is supposed to be a uniting force, not a separating force. Go back to the Greek meaning of the word police. It, it, it's, it's supposed to be where we come together and talk, talk about, maybe answer the one question that I think is the fundamental question of human existence. Is how are we going to live together without depriving anyone of his or her humanity? How are we going to do that? You know, so you see, it's sort of this dance between the abstract and the concrete, never letting one run away from the other. And I think that's the beauty of practical theology, right? Always reminding us that, that, that the abstract only matters if the concrete matters. In fact, the concrete is supposed to give shape to the abstract. And to the extent that the abstract loses sight of the concrete, then it's meaningless. It's meaningless. It's just pure academic stuff, you know? And so I think that's what's happened too often with what happens at, in the manger. It's, it, becomes, it becomes, you could say, domesticated, locked into doctrines and, and dogmas that are abstracted from ordinary life. And then they are used to control people, to make them Christian. It's used to destroy cultures and civilizations so that we can save the hidden. We forget that it is indeed a dance between life and death, that liminal space, you could say, in between. But it seems to me it's a space that always is always bent towards life. And we need to understand that. And that helps us to understand the very meaning of our own lives. Right, the limits to our own lives so that we understand there's an end to this, but it's not ultimately the ultimate end. But that means that we have to live a certain way, we have to live in humility, 
love, compassion. There's a way that calls for us to live. You know, and, and so, I don't know. I think you, you don't have to get into the religious too much to get a sense that life is to be lived vigilantly, you know, with awareness of what's important, awareness of the needs of the other, awareness of our tendencies to cultivate ideas and, and feelings that are harmful, that are hurtful, that are, uh, um, we could say, even destructive. You know, that, that walking in a different kind of light. You know, and I think that is that where Christmas comes, you know, uh, reminds me of, you know, it says that that place, I'm looking forward, right? I cannot separate the birth from the death. But then if the death has any meaning, then this is absolutely meaningful. And I find that we don't do that enough. Christmas is a time that you, you share gifts, you talk about, you know, baby in the manger, the virgin birth, you talk about, you tell the same stories over and over and over and over. And, and the world doesn't seem to get any better. And yet, when I see the statement that's, that, that, that's made through that birth and the, uh, the, the, the subsequent death, what I see is that it's, it's, it's saying that, no, it, this is for every day. This is not something that happens sometime at some point somewhere. And all we have now is the stories are left over. It's something that has consequences on a daily basis. And it's supposed to be the basis of our politics, of our economics, of our ethics. It's supposed to be the basis of it all. That human life is to be lived with purpose. That love is the ultimate foundation. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense, you know. And before you know it, you have a country with that many people in it that split almost half and half. And spewing hate, dividing families because we missed the point. We hold on to the abstract at the expense of the concrete. I agree with you. I think that Christmas has become abstracted. Uh, I think that part of the problem is we've, we've separated the, the event at Christmas and we've separated the event at Calvary and Easter, they're two separate abstract ideas and they don't seem to be connected. And I find that Christmas should be a invitation, a journey into a liminal space, into the, a place of life, of love, and a place of that ultimately goes toward death and that the Christmas journey is our initiation, our entrance into a real space of transformation. I, I, I like to think of Christmas as maybe the more important in a way than Easter because the journey can't start at Easter. You can't just start at death. That death does it make any sense unless you go back and experience the life? Yeah. Our lives bring meaning to our deaths. Indeed. And if I just jump at either point in the story without going through the journey that got me there, that, happen, that happens between Christmas and Easter, then that story is just going to be a time of, you know, for Christmas, just putting up the tree, singing the carols, yeah. you know, 
putting the baby manger, putting the baby in the manger mm-hmm. and, and, and plays and those sorts of things. Uh, there's not going to be any connection invitation that Christmas is calling me to respond to it. I see Christmas as an opportunity, an opportunity to learn how to love, to see what life looks like to love and to extend that love, to expand that love and what may be the ultimate consequence of love, that sacrificial nature of love. And so I don't think we understand the love that comes on Christmas without also understanding that love requires also sacrifice. It requires perhaps a giving of oneself. The meaning I think of Christmas is lost if we don't also think about the the wider, longer liminal journey that takes me mm-hmm. that Christmas, I feel, is a threshold. We walk through, we, we choose, we can respond to Christmas as either, you know, one, I'm just going to put up the decorations, respond, uh, do the things that make me feel good, that there's an expectation to do, or really take Christmas as a challenge to enter into the possibilities that exist oh, oh, in oh. radical love. Mm-hmm. And that in Christmas, I feel that this is the place, this is the time for Christianity to f- become Christianity. If, if Christianity is ever, has any hope of ever becoming what mm. it was supposed to be, because I don't mm. think what Christianity is, is Christianity. It, it, is, mm. it, it uses the name, but I don't think mm. we haven't entered that, um, you know, call it whatever you want, kingdom of God but that this is a time to discover and to find what it means to become, and I say Christian, but I want to say to become embodiment of love. I feel the story is trying to show us that love can become embodied in a human being. And that should be a call to transform ourselves. And we don't do that at the end of the journey. We start here. And, and, and that process begins at Christmas as we walk and we move toward, toward Calvary, toward Easter. I don't know if that's getting very theologically or theologizing too much, but I feel Christmas has a, a meaning that, that we're missing. And if we're talking about what's next, I think this is the perfect time to kind of break that down. I, I, I think it's very powerful the way you put that, though. Uh, you said two things that I thought were extremely powerful, uh, talking about Christmas as an initiation into something new. And then and when you said that was the end of the comments, that, um, that love is embodied there you know, in human form, which to me says, this is what's possible. This was possible to us, through us, you know? And I think maybe, I guess we're all getting very theological. We can't help it, I suppose. Uh, But um, 
it's this notion of of abstraction. I think though sometimes we're going back to that to that motif. Uh, we abstract so much from even the Christ event. We abstract it to the point where it loses the human dimension, which is the, the, which is there to teach us so much. You know, which is to me what I can learn the most from. You know, I, I, I find that I can learn the most from somebody who can live like me and sort of feel like me and someone who can cry like me. And I find that when, when you start talking about the divine nature of, of, of Christ, it's, it's a bit harder for me to, to, to figure out how I'm going to make, make sense of it, you know? Because the question is, then what does that mean for the way I live? Can that help me live better? Can that help me uh, become better? Can that give me hope and or bring hope into this situation of chaos and, and hopelessness that there's so many of us live in. You know, can that can that help me imagine a different future and not just imagine it, do my part to bring it about. Can that really do that? And I think the vulnerability and and, and the seeming powerlessness of a baby, it, it is it is the quintessential, you could say paradox of it all. Where indeed to say that in this child all oh, this is possible <laughs> in this child who seems so powerless and, 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 and completely living, uh, uh, um, you know, dependent of, on, on somebody else for every, every, every little thing, you know, and I think maybe that's part of it. We don't, we don't think enough about the humanity of, of Jesus, but the, the, the humanity of it all. Uh, what was it like? At, what was, what was he like at five years old? You know, uh, six years old. I wonder, the first questions that Jesus asked of the little boy, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, I know from the scriptures, I had to do the work of my father, don't you know that, you know? I mean, this is like, that's all nice and all, but was he human or not? <laughs> you know, was he human or not? When you see that the humanity, you consider the humanity, then I think you can consider what we are just talking about. Making a choice to live in hope despite everything that's around you. You know, making that intentional move to say, this is how I shall live. I'm going to cast a different light. I'm going to speak a different language. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to shine a different light onto all this. You know, sometimes, sometimes I do wonder about the struggles, you know, that Jesus faced as a, as a human person. Because I look at my own struggles. And, and, and if Jesus, the man, cannot provide that for me, then he's not worth anything to me. Because what I want to know is not what's going to happen in the by and by. I want to know how I make it through this. I want to know if there's any meaning to this. I want to know how I get from this point here, right? What is next? What is next? And when I look at the child, then I can look at, you know, the toddler. I can look at, you know, the, the adolescent. I can look at, you know, the, the teenager. I can look at the young adult. You know, uh, Jesus didn't wake up and he was 33 and making wise decisions. You know, how did he come about from this place where we all can speak of a, a, a place that was predestined and all of that? But how about the human elements, right? The forces that shaped this person to get to that point, you know? I'm, uh, I'm teaching a course right now uh, for, for, for uh, some, some of our kids in Haiti uh, on, on Amical Cabral and looking at his life, looking at uh, the development of his, of his thoughts and everything. And, and, and the question that I have for them this week is okay. So far, you've read a couple of bi you know biographical pieces. You've you've read things that about his uh, 
his political thoughts and, and, and his social thoughts. And so, but how do we come from this child born in this place to this man, a revolutionary? So what creates this person? How does he stay on this path? How does he respond to the forces that are there in his life? It, it, it's not like Jesus was, you know, it, it, was, it was imprinted in his DNA and he, he didn't have any other choice he could make. Then, then he wouldn't be human, right? So how does it come from this baby in the manger to the man hanging on the cross? So then to me, I don't know, those are the questions that, that I'm more interested in than what happened when, when the, while the tomb was closed, you know, because, well, you know what? I, it doesn't help me to live differently, you know? That would help me to be a better man. I want to know how I come from where I am now or how the United States comes from where it is now, today, and where it's been this past year. Or how the world comes from this place under, under the knee of COVID-19 to what's possible. There's the potential, right? The potentiality of why there was embedded in this baby. And then that's what happens afterwards. How do we get from one place to the other? And maybe that's, that is the limit of question. It is, it is what, how, how did it happen, right? And, and when, I, when I think about that, then yeah, I can see Jesus as someone I can walk with, right? Let's have a chat about that. You know? Yeah, I think Christmas is exactly. I, I, it's this l- celebration of the liminality of the impossible. It's a celebration of the liminality of potential, of what can be, of what might be, of the journey that remains unwritten. That, you know, if really all Jesus needed to do was come as a human being, just show up as 33 year old and die, get it over with and, and, you know, done deal, move on. But the fact that it begins as, as, as a baby, as the most, most vulnerable being you can think of, and that there is this progression, this, what would, you know, the choices that were made, the, the potentiality of, of this decision versus that decision of of what it means to wrestle with purpose as a as a teenager as a young adult as as even right now speaking as a thirty uh, something plus uh, I'm older than Jesus now but uh, <laughs> I still wrestle with these questions of purpose and what am I supposed to do and meant to be and. You know, I think Christmas is a celebration of all that. That that's good. That being a human being is supposed is a good thing, and that it should be an invitation to discover and support one another and and and, and love. You know, I'm not as as I've gotten older, I've become less and less interested about questions about the nature of Christ. Uh, fully human, fully divine, and all these different things. You know, how much did he, uh, you know, was, did he know all that God knows? And those sorts of questions <laughs> have become less and less relevant to me because they don't seem they don't they're not they don't reflect reality. They don't they don't uh, they're not questions that I deal with. I don't deal with my own divinity um, because I, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, ha- I have to wrestle with my own humanity and what does that mean? You know, the question to me that most connects me 
to Christ is that story that begins at Christmas. And, you know, even, even beyond just speaking as a theologian or as a Christian, I think it's a very human story that, you know, whatever you believe about Christ, here was a, someone, a man who wrestled with his purpose, sought to change his world and teach others a better way. We can talk about all the religious aspects to that and what that means, and, and theologians can debate about this and that. But I think, to me, at the end of the day, it's the, the story of Christ resonates because it's a human story. And, and I think that, to me, is comforting as, a, as we face, I think, what's going to be a very difficult liminal transitional time as we think about what's next you know uh i think that has to be what challenges me every day what challenges me to be hopeful challenges me to work on my love to reevaluate to think about my own shortcomings my own failing uh failures because because the story began with a small child and, and what does the story mean that it ended in death? Uh, I guess, you know, we, there's a death that awaits us all. And what am I going to do with the time that's given to me? You know, and then when we think of the times of Jesus's birth, it reminds me so much of what's happening now. Uh, there was, there was a chaos. There was a lot of chaos and violence. Uh, that even his his life was threatened. Uh, a time of uh, there was so much oppression, you know, and and to me when I look back then and I think, okay, so this child was born in the midst of that. And when we look back at this life, because of the choices that that he would make. Now we can say, wow, he was the hope of the world. He brought hope to the world. And I think we need to look at that and consider our own birth, consider our own presence in this time, and consider our own Calvary. And ask, what shall be said of us? What shall be said of us? Will those who come after look back and say, in a time of chaos, she came, he came, and in her own way, in his own way, in their own way, they made the world better. And for me, the challenge of the birth of Jesus is not so much the challenge of, am I going to live according to the precepts of Christianity or not? Or am I saved or not? The challenge to me that the birth of Jesus presents is one of here too is a human being just like you. Faced with challenges just like you. Threatened and in some ways oppressed 
just like you, but also, also faced with many opportunities and faced with opportunities to make choices that would impact the lives of others. And what will you do? What will you do? Looking to my own death, for instance, that space between now and then, what will I do? So that is the challenge Christmas presents before me, is the challenge of the possibilities of humanity and the call to embrace those possibilities and to live with intentionality, right? To live in hope so that all the chaos might be relativized because of the choices that I'm going to make. Yeah, it's a very human challenge indeed. Maybe that speaks to the depth of human existence. And I know too often some theologians do not like for us to, uh, you know, to make ourselves into little Christs. And I get that, you know, I'm not trying to make myself into a little Christ here. But as a person, what, what appeals to me the most in that story is the fact that this too was a person. So here we are. However vulnerable we might feel sometimes, however powerless we might feel sometimes, well, this child lived, grew, made choices. Made choices that we, in hindsight, are calling something else. Um, but what was it like for that child you know, I don't know. I see a person becoming a man, making choices, and choosing to be for others what others needed, even if that cost him his life. What a challenge from a baby. Yeah, I think that's that's the that's the irony of the story is the immense challenge that comes from a baby, someone who is not threatening, not powerful at all. You know, sometimes we, we depend upon the powerful to, to challenge us, to make a difference, to cause us to act in some way. But here is a story where the call, the, the call to us comes not from the powerful, but comes from someone who is powerless. And I think that in a way that scares people. I think there's some times, I think there's some effort to domesticate Christmas. We, that in a way, the songs we sing decorating some of the rituals that we do the holiday things the shopping way to distance ourselves from the event that you know we we think okay i'm in the christmas spirit i'm i'm you know i'm doing this or that but what we're really doing is domesticating the event um taming it in a way uh setting parameters on what it means and because Mm -hmm if we take seriously what the Christmas event means, 
then it's a challenge to human existence itself or each individual human existence, not just in the abstract, not just a, a, a theological conundrum or problem about God appearing as a human being, but the challenge of, of love, the challenge of God, whatever we conceive God to be, but that comes as a child and mm-hmm. in, in the embodiment of love that the human being itself becomes this enormous potentiality of yeah. of what the possibilities are of, of of love and and i think the scary thing is love may not take us where we think it will go mm-hmm. and that it very mm-hmm. may very well may lead to yeah. a place of suffering, a place of pain, yeah. a place of our own death. Yeah. And and unless we have that sight, that full picture of the story, yeah. you know, Christmas becomes just a, a time for singing songs and uh, putting up a tree and but it has no real, you know. Once once the twenty sixth arrives, you know we're we're all yeah. ready to take it down and, yeah. and put it away and <laughs> uh, and put it in some box. You know, we forget about mm-hmm. it for the rest of the year. Um, yeah. uh, that is extremely powerful, Jonathan. Extremely powerful. And, and and as you were saying that, I was thinking maybe we need a symbol for the birth. We we. We have the cross that people love to wear and hang and, 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 and etched into things. And I think that's a problem. It's because we forget the birth. You see, we, we, we separate the birth from the, from the death. Because we think, oh yeah, he was born, yeah, but as Paul says it, you know, in his death, we, we, we are baptized. It's like, it's like plunging under the water, right? You, you submerged and you die with him and you rise with him, right? And it does, it's nice language, nice symbols, and I get that. But this is what I think. And maybe that's why we're so afraid. It is so overwhelming. Maybe we do need a symbol for the birth, but maybe we don't. It's already there. How about every birth? That takes place. Should that not take us back to that place? Every birth, in other words, every human being has a worth. Every human being has that potentiality we're talking about. Every human being who's born, well, that is an event to celebrate. And you see, to me, when we do that, then our politics have to look different. Our economics have to look different. We don't draw lines and decide these are worthy and these are not. We say this, all of these have the potential that this little one had in Bethlehem. What if every birth was the symbol? It's a living symbol. And we made space for that. You know, I... I'm, I'm always saddened by the way during political campaigns especially Christians especially cling to 
Roe versus Wade, right? Anti-abortion uh, uh, attitudes. And, you know, and because I wasn't born in this country, and, and that's not an issue for us in Haiti so much. You see, I, I, I wasn't brought up with this, with, with this uh, um, I guess, with this, with this as a problem for us. You know, I, I just wasn't brought up with that. that. That doing campaigns and it's always the poor versus the con and, you know, excuse me, the, the poor versus the anti, what is it? The poor life versus the, 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 the poor abortion, however they, however they frame it. And, and then and what, what you find is that the camp that, that calls itself poor life is usually the camp that's pro-military, big military, bigger guns, you know, it's always that camp. And, and I know this is me coming from outside and looking, right? And thinking, what is happening here? What is this contradiction? If life is mean, meaningful at all, shouldn't be meaningful at any stage. No, no, no. It's also the same group that's usually pro-death penalty and pro-imprisonment, you know, right? It's, it's the same group that wants to protect the unborn. Once again, abstraction, right? You know, from the concrete. Well, I said to myself, wait a minute. So, so wait a minute, wait a minute. If, what if we treated people differently? So some of the, so many of these people who run to the abortion clinics because there's no space for them. They can't imagine becoming mothers at 15, 16, even at 30. They can't pay the mortgage. They can't pay the rent. Then how are they supposed to feed the child? Knowing that the culture they live in is going to ostracize them, is going to call them all sorts of names. It's going to be, what is it? People, what, what is it? What, some of the names they use, lazy people who don't want to work. They, they, it's all about um, uh, entitlement, you know. It, it's, it's, so what if we did something different? I wonder if this is not the way we begin this, this conversation about abortion, about poor life. Right there, a baby is born full of life, full of potentiality. Then let that be the defining factor. And if... The six-month-old has value, then the 45-year-old has value. You know, and so I don't know. This has always really, really, I've wrestled with that for a long time. And I never understood that, how something so powerful, so important, has been reduced to just two camps and two very small ideas and, and political slogans, you know. Whereas it's the, it's, the, it's the question that I think Jesus asked even in his birth. Oh, yeah, if all life is important, then yeah, okay. Then all stages of life, of life are important. Every stage of it then. Okay, sure, I can, I can go with that. Okay, then how about then, how about let's, 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 let's provide for these babies. Let's make sure they have a great start. Let's make sure that they have good schools to go to. Let's make sure that they're safe in the communities when they're so vulnerable, you know? Let's make sure that the mothers that are bearing them are not, are not suffering from malnutrition themselves, you know? Let's make sure that women are not being raped so that this important phenomenon doesn't take place in the context of violence, you know? How about, you know, all these things to me, they, if we ask the question here at the very beginning, is if the birth matters, I think it changes everything that, that comes after that. Then forget about being born in the right family. Forget about being born with the right skin tone, in the right country, the right part of the world, you know? And, and the, yeah, you're human. You're my sister, you're my brother. You know, you, you can even be my friend and, and, and we can build something new together, you know? I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm getting it wrong, but, but to me, Jonathan, that story speaks to all of that. 
It cannot be a story about setting aside a small group of people that are going to be called Christians, that are going to claim that heaven belongs to them, and then put everyone else out. Because it's universal. It's the language that everyone speaks. Because all of us are born. All of us are born, as you were saying earlier. It speaks to our humanity. You know, there's, there's something there that we're really missing. And Christmas is so much fun in that. And we, we I don't know, we, we vulgarize it and domesticate it. And that, that makes me really sad. You know? I believe... I believe pro-life begins when we stop seeing people as other. When we pro-life begins when we see each individual person as as a Christ event. Uh, and, and and if we if and until we're able to do that, I don't think we'll make any headway into this debate until we're able to see the other as as a Christ event, as the embodiment of love, as someone who is valuable and who I want to love and I want to give my love to. I think that's what the story of Christmas is in a way too important to, to, to give to us a, a sense of the importance of each individual human person and Indeed. as worthy of our love. To me, pro-life begins with a extreme love of all persons. And, and that requires me to work on my own shortcomings and failures of, uh, of, you know, working on what it means to love someone who I may consider as an other, who there may be some fear or anxiety or even animosity, but that the story of Christmas will continually challenge those views and hopefully move me toward a at least a place of being willing to say, hey, I need to work on my own love. I need to work on what it means to love another, what it means to truly be pro-life. You know, I think what, what, what time of the year is better than, than Christmas for doing that? And, and especially after the, the year we've just had, after a year of so much death, so much uncertainty, so much unrest, so much violence and racism and hatred, at least the hope that Christmas would remind us of the importance of being a human being, the importance of each and every human being, the, the, the importance of the vulnerable, and that this journey doesn't begin at a place of power, the story begins with a, hu- a single human child uh, born in the most vulnerable circumstances and the challenge of Christmas. Uh, if there's a, another title for this episode, uh, I would call it the challenge of Christmas. Um, you know, Indeed. So I, I feel as, as we search for what's next 
and and hold our breaths in anticipation into this liminal space of what this next year will bring and this this decade uh and, and beyond uh as we collectively you know hold our breaths in anticipation I, I think the challenge of christmas should be one that lingers with us throughout this year i think it's something that i hope to remind myself when the tree does come down that the challenge remains yeah i'm thinking about this tradition of offering presents uh, during christmas and and i'm thinking of of the various uh, guests uh, that the baby jesus had you know uh, and and what was brought uh, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering what shall we bring to the baby Jesus? What shall we bring? And maybe that's the question. And I think maybe rather than some shiny new toy that we bring to our loved ones, maybe we should offer a gift, maybe to baby Jesus this year. Uh, let's, let's bring our racism uh, to the baby, uh, there's there's a potential to transform it there. Uh, let's bring you know, our hatred, you know, and we'll also bring our potentiality because that's manifested there. Uh, let's bring all those there, and I know usually because we're always focused on the cross in the church so much. I just say we mostly focus on the cross. I don't know for sure that was the way it was in my tradition. And it still is the tradition in which I, in which I grew up, uh, the Pentecostal tradition. Yeah. It's always what we're going to bring in place at the foot of the cross. You know? And sadly, we domesticate that. The cross is quite domesticated. Uh, I think there with the baby, you can imagine what can be, what could be. You're not expecting for some miracle that happens because Jesus has written his reason, what you, what, what you hope for is that the human Jesus will walk with us and grow within us in some ways because we too are human and that we will choose to live differently. Just the way I think this baby Jesus had to go like a human being and make choices that we make different choices for a new year, you know, for a new year. Uh, we know that even with Corona, it didn't have to be as bad if certain decisions were made early on. Uh, we know that certain communities were hit harder than others because of this very thing of not valuing every human life. I wonder if we could bring those things, not to the cross, just bring them to the manger and look ahead to what could be, you know, to the possibilities of tomorrow. And yeah, 2021 then can be different, not because it's happening, it's gonna happen by chance, it's gonna be different because we're going to live differently. We're going to make different choices. And that makes me hopeful. I don't think I could I could say anything any better than that. Uh, this This language of bringing all those negative things about us, our, our hatreds, our racism, our, our selfishness, our uncaring feelings and indifference and putting them 
at the foot of the manger. And I think that's such a, again, I grew up in the tradition that you, those are things you would bring to the, to the cross, but yeah. what a journey it is if we bring it to, to the manger to, and what that means, what kind of path, what kind of challenge that sets for us. It really does change your perspective and outlook when you look at the baby Jesus and we see nativities all over the place and wow, it really changes that what is often a very sterile, safe scene and makes it a place of really immense, significant importance uh, that, that, that we each respond to. And well, I just have to say thank you for that. Uh, thank you for those perspectives. You know, when we started this conversation, I, I didn't know where we would go, where we would go. I told you beforehand, I had nothing really prepared for this conversation just besides <laughs> just this question. Uh, and uh, as always, this has been a enormously uh, enriching liminal journey uh, <laughs> with this conversation mm-hmm. together, which I think we could probably continue on for for several hours at least. But I, I want to <laughs> save I want to <laughs> save something else for uh, for a episode uh, later on. But I know I've been challenged from this myself. I I, I think I had started losing my Christmas spirit a little bit. Uh, and, and, and I know it's caused me personally to really rethink what, what Christmas means. Um, uh, so I want to thank you for that. I want to just, just an enormously rich uh, perspective that you bring each and every day. I I truly do value it. Well, Jonathan, it's, uh, it's all thanks to you, uh, because when, when I'm with you, I find that we have enriching conversations, mutually enriching and I find them to be journeys of this recovery, you know, and, and that's what I love about it. And which is what I think in so many ways theology should be like, right? Uh, it shouldn't be just, just ruminating on, on old ideas, but it's, it's, uh, it's I don't know. It's, it's, it's maybe holding on to what's good indeed that's been passed on, but really looking at today and looking at it critically, and, and really looking at it, and and maybe to do uh, to do what what I think good theologian good theologians do to ask the hard questions, even when it means becoming really vulnerable, you know. And I think maybe that is the power of of of, of the manger that imagine that God is susceptible to change. Imagine that. That's what that means. God is susceptible to change. God could become something else. You know, we don't wonder what else Jesus could have become. He was human, right? <laughs> you know? And so uh, I think, you know, you make me think of, of uh, David Tracy, just, just his ideas of conversations. And I find that I th- we, we really model out what I think good conversations should be, should be like. And I thank you for that. And I think so much of that comes from you, your, this initiative, this podcast. It's, it's, uh, it's changed my life in many ways. You know, as I've said before to you, every time I say that to you, I go back and I listen because I learned from us. I learned from these conversations because sometimes these ideas I've never thought about before. 
and they emerge right as we as we journey right and when we discover new things and and it's beautiful and it's the power of, of the liminal space maybe it is that's what very much is for this conversation it is a journey through the liminal space as as you describe it you know your podcast and uh, new things emerge and i think most importantly i think new life emerges you know and thank you thank you very much for that thank you yeah thank you too i think um from this i, I do have and very much a a a new perspective on what Tracy and, and Godimer before him were trying to express about conversation and that, you know, we don't enter these conversations knowing beforehand, you know, what, yeah. where we'll go or what we'll agree to, but the willingness to be changed, to grow and to, I think, enter very much a liminal space that uh, we come out of this yeah. thing, uh, very much different people. So each time I think we, we, we do this, I think uh, yeah. we grow a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find a little more, I find a few more things that I need to work on yeah. and yeah. think about. And yeah. uh, so I just want to wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. And uh, uh, we'll do this again very soon. Thank you. I wish you the same. Merry Christmas. And I think because of, of this conversation, it's going to be a different Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm wondering what gifts I would place near the manger. Me too. Um, you know, and maybe uh, to those who will listen, I will, I will, I'll share that message, you know, and, and that's going to come up. And I think now that, you know, we've spoken about it, it will, it will, uh, it, I'm realizing that, it's going to come up in my, in my paper that I'm going to will be posting to the website. Um, and, and, uh, as I started thinking on these things and, and we've come, I don't know, because of this conversation, thanks to this conversation, I've come to some new, new ideas. Uh, thank you. All the best, of course, to your family. And you do have still somewhat a baby yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you still have, you still, uh, live in the shadow of the manger in some ways. Yeah. You know, uh, so, uh, I'm living in, <laughs> I'm living in the liminality of toddlerhood. So, and, and and that's the conversation I'm hoping we can have one day. Maybe, maybe what we'll do one day is that I'll put on the headphones you're wearing. I'll be I'll be doing a recording, and and we'll do the interview. You know, for you to be on the other side. Uh, of course, this is a conversation, not an interview per se, but the other format. Because I'd, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear your perspective on, on fatherhood and. And I'm looking forward to what you produce from that experience. I think I think it will be fascinating. Yeah, yeah, uh, having definitely. read what you've written already, you know, I, I remember your letter to Ava, which was powerful. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more and to reading more. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you, Emmanuel. My name is Jonathan Best, and this has been Liminal Theology. Learn more at liminaltheology.org. Thank you.